We are in, back in Exodus. I invite you to look at the, the words in your bulletin or turn your, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. We'll be, be reading together this morning for a sermon. Exodus 6, verses 10 through 30. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palo, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab, and the sister of Neshon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are dependent upon you. You are the one who reveals yourself in your word. You have preserved your word and you've preserved us. And we sit in your presence, called by you this day, and we plead with you to open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. 
It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There's a book at our house. It used to belong to my father. But his things have found their way to our house, many of them. And there's a book that if you were to open it up to the title page, would find the words, A Study in the Politics of Virginia and the Nation from 1790 to 1830. Now, my dad loved history, but that's not why he had the book. The, t- the story, the study as it unfolds, is it's actually a story. It's a story that revolves around one central figure. A central figure who served in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1790 to 98. He served as a long-term U.S. Senator from Virginia in, from 1804 to 1815, and then served as the 24th Governor of Virginia for three one-year terms, 1827 to 1829. And a study that revolves around one central figure sounds like a biography, and it is, because those words a study in the politics of Virginia and the nation from 1790 to 1830 are actually the subtitle of a book that goes by the title William Bradford Giles. And we've, over the course of the years, people that I do not know in my family have done enough of the work for us to be able to connect enough dots to assert and affirm and claim that William Bradford Giles is in our family tree, or maybe I'm in his. The most prominent member of our family tree is the one who was on cordial, if not friendly, relations with Thomas Jefferson, and as a representative in the House, sponsored Tennessee as the 16th state of the Union. You're welcome. There's a Giles County to the south of us. There's a Giles County, Virginia, that we drove past for the 24 years that we commuted back and forth to our home in Nashville here. You'll understand if I find that genealogy fascinating, and you can absorb a piece of that uh, with me, perhaps. But why do I tell you this? It's because Bible genealogies read a bit different. I mean, they sound a bit different. And we struggle with even the names that we run into. And this is not even the longest Bible genealogy. Check out 1 Chronicles, where the first nine chapters are simply genealogies. They have a way of, a long list of names like that have a way of ruining a good story. And by the way, we're in the middle of a good story. This is a remarkable story, and they have a way of ruining a story unless there is something about that list that adds depth or color or both to the story. And that's what we find here. But when we come to a list of names like this, we should ask two questions. One is, what is it doing here? And the other one is similar. What is it doing here. And with those two questions, we get a handle on a passage of scripture that we are more inclined to gloss over or skip over. 
And we have a whole sermon about it. Indulge me for just a moment. I, I hope you will find this. I find it fascinating. I hope you find it helpful. Uh, look at the text printed in your bulletin. I think that's the easiest way to see this because uh, if you're reading your Bible, it might not fall out quite the same way. But if you're to look at this, one of the things you'll find is there's some structure that Moses, we understand, was the one who assembled this, this information, and he does so intentionally and purposefully. And in verse 10 and 11... You hear, you see that the Lord spoke to Moses. You see the same thing in verse 28. So there's, there's some parallels. And you heard it as we read it, perhaps. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses. That has, that's how it begins and ends. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? How will Pharaoh listen to me? That's at the end. And that serves kind of as a bookend on this passage that we're looking at. Or an outer ring, maybe another way of thinking of it. And I say an outer ring because I think there was also an inner ring right inside that. You see these words, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And in verse 26, to bring the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Verse 27, bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. There's an outer ring and there's an inner ring And then there's this genealogy. There's some structure there. Moses is revisiting the question. That's how it begins and ends, this passage. He's revisiting the question he first uttered in the glow of the burning bush. This was a few weeks ago. Where Moses heard this call from God and said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That was chapter 3. And then in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 10, he's complaining that he's not eloquent or powerful in speech. And here we are again, a passage that begins and ends with, are you sure it's me? I am of uncircumcised lips. That's another factor that he adds. It, it may be, people speculate, that maybe with that strange language, uncircumcised lips, he's simply saying, Not only am I physically unable to do this because I'm so slow of speech, I don't talk well, but I'm unclean. I'm personally unfit for the task. This is a big question for him. Who am I to bring these people out of this mess? Are you sure it's me? By the way, they do make it out of Egypt. Uh, That's part of the story. I don't want to give the whole thing away. How they got out is a remarkable story. I want you to come back to hear that one. When the way they get out of Egypt, it's fascinating. It deserves a sermon of its own and probably a movie. It's (laughs) remarkable. And they do wander for 40 years. I don't want to give too much away, but they, they wander for 40 years and And at the end of that 40 years, Moses knows that he is not going to enter the promised land. He's learned that. That developed along the way. And he's assured, he's been assured that he will not go with his people into the into the new land. But there are people about to go, and they are filled with questions. And some of the questions are: what's that going to be like? 
But the other question is, why did it take us 40 years to get here? Moses, you were our leader. (laughs) And what Moses is doing is he sits in the plains of Moab with the promised land in view that he will not enter. He writes Israel's story. There's good evidence to believe that that's where what we call Exodus came together, or all of the Pentateuch was assembled on the plains of Moab before Israel enters the land because they need to know their story and they need to know who it is that God spoke to named Moses and his brother Aaron. That's what seems to be going on. He placed this genealogy here for a reason when he compiled his story, when he compiled Israel's story. And I love the way Kevin DeYoung puts this. Remember, this genealogy was not what Moses heard in the moment. The Lord didn't say, Okay, you think you can't speak? Let me tell you about your family tree. Rather, this is Moses writing later, inspired by the Spirit for the Israelites. As they wander in the wilderness on the verge of entering the promised land, they need to be reminded of their own history And what Moses wants to do is to show God's people that he was wrong and God was right. The genealogy is meant to reassure them that God did not pick the wrong person for the job. Moses was the right man, not only because of what would happen, but because the Israelites who were reading this and hearing this knew what happened. They were on the other side of the Exodus. But they could also trust Moses because where he was from. This remarkable, dramatic story is about to, the action is about to pick up. But before that story is told, the author reminds his readers in the plains of Moab just who Aaron and Moses are, verse 26, to whom the Lord has spoken. The right man for the job, not because he was qualified, but he was appointed by God, by a God he can trust. So what do we learn from two brothers and their family tree? Here's what we learn. You and I can trust a God like that when he calls you to himself and places you in his service. That's a God that you can trust. Well, with the time that we have, I think this, I want to just get at this in this fashion. We see in this in this story, this, this group of names, we see a family. And it's a family of priests. It's a family of flawed characters. And it's a family that points forward. Let's, let's consider those just for our time here. A family of priests. The genealogy before us starts where every genealogy should. It starts with the firstborn, Reuben. He was the firstborn son. And then comes Simeon, verse 15. And then in verse 16, we get to Levi, and then, we, and then we do a deep dive. He never gets to the rest of the 12 sons of Jacob. Because he wants us to see Levi and all of the Levites that are the family tree of Aaron and Moses. That's what we see there. Uh, prophets, you see, like Moses and, and others like him, like Saul and like <clears throat> Isaiah and Hosea, prophets were called. They were called to service. Jeremiah was called. But priests were born. They weren't called. 
in that same sense, they were, their calling was in the fact that they were born into a Levitical family. That was their role. If you were a Levite, if you were born into that family, you knew that you were going to have a role in the service of the Levitical work that unfolds over time. Where did that start? Well, <clears throat> let's leap forward one more time uh, to the, uh, let's go to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, that's where this happens. Where, where Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes down and what does he find? The golden calf. And then in that episode, in that chaos, Moses cries out, all who are on the Lord's side, come over here and join me. And the Levites were the ones that joined Moses. And then the Lord pronounces upon them right there at that place, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. From that day forward, the Levites, these names that we've just read, the Levites were the ones who had a particular role in the life of Israel. It was a role of great status and responsibility. To be a Levite was to have a job that others didn't have. And it was a crucial job. It was a vital job. It was a necessary job. You see, they were the ones who ordered and organized and provided for the worship of the living God. They were the ones who carried all of these elements of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting where God would meet with his people. That tent went with them all the way for all 40 years. It went through the wilderness. And how did it go? It was the Levites. They carried it. They, they, they carried it. They assembled it. They, they broke it down. They packed it up and they carried it to the next site. It was the Levites who did that. And when Israel camped all on their journey, if you see in the scriptures how they, how they describe where each tribe camped when they camped, it was the Levites that surrounded the, the tent. When the tent was up for worship, it was the Levites that encircled the tent. Their, their job was almost, you might think of it as the ones who protected the Lord's holiness. The Levites were the people who protected the Lord's holiness. They're the ones who handled and, and implemented and, and, instrument, and administered all the sacrifices. What's that about? It's the Lord's holiness. Our uncleanness in the Lord's holiness. The, the Levites had a a great status and great responsibility. They were the ones who would intercede on behalf of the people. The high priest would be the one in particular who would intercede on behalf of the people. It was a family of priests. Those are the names that we read here. But it wasn't just a family of priests. It was a family of flawed characters. Some of those names may have jumped out at you. But that list of names, uh, extensive as it is, as hard to pronounce as it is, carried the weight of some of those, some of a few names that were blemishes in the family tree. Let me mention a, a few. Well, it starts before you get the Levites. It starts with Reuben, who who committed incest with his father's concubine. Well, that's not a good start. He lost his birthright as a result. Levi, in unwarranted outrage against Shechem, uh, 
He was denied in his inheritance for the tribes. He was scattered among them instead. That turned out to be a blessing, but it started as a curse. Amram, verse 20, who was that? Well, we're told he took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. That's not so cool. He married his aunt. Eventually, that was going to end up in the law. And for Moses to include it here is to say, yeah, even before the law, we were breaking it. Nadab and Abihu, you remember them? They were struck dead by the Lord because of, in their priestly duties, they offered unauthorized fire. They chose some innovative, creative ways to worship. And God said no. Korah? A rebel. <laughs> In number 16, you read about Korah's rebellion. He was not content with his God-given place in ministry. That's the family tree that Moses lays out. It's a family of priests, but it's a family of flawed characters. More than a few names you wouldn't want to bring up at the family reunion. But you see, it, wasn't, it was never their morality. Never. It was never their morality that qualified them for office. None of them. Moses, you and your uncircumcised lips. I'm not looking for circumcised lips. I'm looking for you. I'll take care of the uncircumcised lip. I will take care of the brokenness in your own heart. I'll take care of the fact that you were a sinner by birth. Moses, your calling is a gift of grace. It's not based on rights or morality or privileges of birth. Moses, it's a gift of grace. I know you're not perfect. Just trust me and go. That seems to be what Moses is saying by including this family tree of, mis of, of flawed characters. It's not about morality. It's not about abilities. It's about stepping into the role that God has assigned and hearing his name call you and placing you into his service. Have you, have you heard that? Has the Lord come somewhere along the way and said, you here, <laughs> I've got a role for you in my kingdom, in my purposes. That gospel that propels us, where is it propelling you? Have you considered how imperfect you are and how sufficient your God is? Generations later, the Apostle Paul will boast in his weaknesses. He heard Jesus say to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And Moses is getting a foretaste of that here. And so are we. Have you, do you know anything of his mercy? Is his mercy sweet to you? The mercy that is yours, the mercy that is full, the mercy that comes to you through Christ, who says, it's, it's not circumcised lips and moral perfection I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that are dependent upon me and know that my grace is sufficient and my blood covers. 
your deepest needs. It's a family of priests. It's a family of flawed characters. And it's a family that points forward. I've already hinted that a bit. You see, Israel would always have in their midst a prophet and a priest. Always. Starting with Abraham was a prophet. Enoch had a prophetic kind of role. But there's always someone prophetic, declaring the Lord's word and his will. That's what the prophets in the Old Testament are. Those who thus saith the Lord. They are his mouthpiece. They're referred to as my servants, the prophets. They have a role to play in this declaration of who I am and what I'm up to, says God. But it's one flawed prophet after another. It's one flawed priest. And it's Moses and Aaron, a flawed prophet, and his son Eleazar, after, after Aaron has died, a flawed prophet and a flawed priest on the brink of the, of, the, of the promised land. But it was, but it was God who said to Moses, and Moses then to his people in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. It is to him you shall listen. And when Moses said that, he was not talking about Isaiah. As the New Testament unfolds, we hear of one whose teaching is unlike any prophet. One who never says, thus saith the Lord. Never. You never hear Jesus of Nazareth saying, thus saith the Lord. What do we hear him saying? Truly, truly, I say to you. Not just the last great prophet, but the word himself. Jesus in our midst. Mark puts it this way. They were astonished at his teaching, those who listened, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. John writes, the Jews marveled. How is it that this man has become so learned because he's never been educated? And Jesus answered that one. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And Jesus praying says this about his disciples. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That flawed prophet points to a flawless one. The true prophet. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the God man. The God man made flesh. One flawed prophet and one flawed priest. As the priest, it was Eleazar at that point on the brink. Aaron had died, but Eleazar was the, the priest on the edge of the plains of Moab. And those priests, one after another, serve as, as forerunners, as types, we might say, of priests. 
But they not only point forward to, to another priest to come, they point upward to a flawless priest to come who would be the very sacrifice of sin. That's who Christ is. He's not just the priest. He is the sacrifice. Jesus is the true high priest. And Hebrews says his priesthood continues forever. It's permanent. And teaches us, Hebrews does, that every Old Testament sacrifice, all of those done by these characters, flawed or, or not, point to another sacrifice. All of those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to, to a, a final and full and complete and perfect sacrifice. Another way to put it is, the shadow of the cross fell on each of Aaron's sacrifices. For every Levite that picked up a knife, it was the shadow of another knife and another sacrifice that all of those had in view and that we are to have in mind. One flawed prophet and one flawed priest pointing us forward to a true prophet, a true priest. And in the midst of it all, that genealogy says, concludes with this, this is the Moses and Aaron that the Lord spoke to. That's who this is. That Moses and Aaron in your midst, those Levites, those are the ones that the Lord spoke to. And that's why Moses writing that says, you can trust a God like this. I was wrong. God was right. And you can trust him. He's always right. And we are often so wrong. And of course, we are imperfect. But our God is sufficient. And we need to hear Jesus say, my grace is sufficient for you. When you hear his voice and respond in faithful allegiance... He places you right where he wants you, in his arms and in his service. And that service is determined by where you find yourself today. It's not somewhere down the road. It's not six years from now. But the Lord has you in his arms for his purposes and his service somewhere today. Moses had gifts of which he was unaware. They became evident as he used, as he lived this out. He became quite a leader. He became a sufficient spokesman because it wasn't his sufficiency at all. It was God showing up in the midst of a broken, messy person like us. And yet we have this tendency to think that maybe there's something about our lives or our performance or our record that relegates us to the back row rather than on the front lines of God's work in the world. That work might be within the walls of the church. It might be in the community. It might be with refugees. But we're called into his service. And he goes with us and he equips us. And he's not waiting for us to get better. Because he's taken care of that. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The work of the true priest, that sacrifice, that is what qualifies you. That's what sets you in place and in his arms. So what does it look like when you know who you are and where he wants you? Well, let me suggest a few things. Here's, here's something of what it looks like. This is not an exhaustive list. But when you know who you are in Christ... 
and, and you are where he has you and wants you. Hardships do not dislodge you from the task at hand. Challenges become occasions for resolve. You learn to trust him in the midst of trials and difficulties. You begin to be more concerned about his honor than your comfort. And ultimately, a sense of joy comes your way as you steward gifts and opportunities to serve him. Has that happened to you? Is it? Is it happening to you? Do you sense that? Do you taste that? When you begin to know who you are, like Moses eventually came to know, it's not about my abilities. It's not about my lips. It's about God and his sufficiency. He knows who you are. You can trust him. He knows where you are from. And he is a place where you fit in his grand purpose, a purpose that is grand enough to demand your wholehearted allegiance. That's what Christ understood. As the man, he understood that the cause before him was worth his wholehearted and his whole life allegiance and obedience. And he gave his life that you and I would have life and have a place in the family of God. You know, it's one thing, actually it's a small thing, to maybe perhaps be related to the 24th governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's quite another. To be grafted into the vine and to be made, as Peter calls it, into a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, church, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As a son or daughter of the living God, we take our place in his family, not because we're qualified, because we're not, but we belong to one who is and who gives us that qualification. He who knew no sin was made sin, that we might be the righteous of God. That's the work of a true priest who ever lives to intercede for you and me for his purposes and his glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want <clears throat> to, to embrace the reality that as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters of the living God, we have been made into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your possession. And we thank you for the window into that through the life of and the words of Moses, for the story of your work to redeem and, and to restore and to make new all things. Lord, use us for your glory, we pray. Wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, grafted into the vine, and made children of the promise, and counted as offspring. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.